Um, well, morning everyone. Let my, me add my welcome to Jamie's, um, especially if I've not had a chance to meet you properly yet. I'm Kath, and um, hopefully I'll get a chance to chat to you at the end of the service. Um, if this is your first week or you're just visiting for the morning, we are right in the middle of a teaching series that we started a few weeks ago called When Jesus Met dot dot dot, basically looking at different moments throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus's life where all sorts of different people from all kinds of backgrounds, different walks of life had an encounter with Jesus. I'm out of breath because I ran to the loo. Paramac, <laughs> so forgive me for that. Um, but all sorts of people had different encounters with Jesus that left them completely transformed. And this morning we've got a Billy bonus because we are looking at the moment when Jesus met not just one but two people, which is very exciting. Simon the Pharisee and a woman, we'll call her now, the woman with the jar of perfume. Um, and there is so much gold in this passage. So I want to actually just dive straight in this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Um, Luke is one of the gospel accounts, one of the sort of witness accounts of Jesus's life. Um, you can find it if you've got one of those black Bibles on your seats on page 779. We're in Luke chapter 7 um, and it should appear on the screen as well. Fantastic. And we're going to read together from verse 36. <coughs> it says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the first time, from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, now, quick, very unrelated or sort of very tenuously related question for you this morning. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Show of hands. Lovely. You're my fellow friends. Um, to my great delight, a few weeks ago, it was, it, was, it was after church one Sunday, a few of us went to the pub, and it was one of those awful, grisly afternoons where it's like that kind of rain that you can't even really see it, but you just get totally soaked. And we were all sort of talking about, oh, what are we going to do with this afternoon? It's not much fun. And I said, oh, do you know what I feel like doing? I feel like going home and watching a Harry Potter film under a duvet. But the problem with Harry Potter is it's actually quite hard to track down because they have loads of stuff on the right, so it's not on Netflix or anything like that. 
Anyway, went home, checked the live TV listings, as Jamie often mocks me for, because he's like, who, is live who watches live TV anymore? Um, and I discovered, to my delight, this was the Lord's intervention, that ITV, that very afternoon, was showing the first in the Harry Potter film series. So I was totally chuffed. I spent the afternoon under the covers watching the first in the Harry Potter films. Um, and last Sunday, I watched the second. Today, if you want to know where to find me this afternoon, I will be watching Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban under my duvet. Um, but to my shame, in a moment of shameless procrastination this week, I did follow a link to a witch Harry Potter character quiz. Are you? So I've never done one of these quizzes before. I thought I'm 33. It's about time I found out which Harry Potter character I'm most like. So quick question. Jamie, I'm putting you on the spot. Can you guess which Harry Potter character? Incorrect. For the podcast, Jamie said Hermione. Um, Actually, I was, and I'm pretty happy with this answer. Albus Dumbledore. Right? I've done well. There he is, your Albus Dumbledore. If you can't read the screen, it says this. You're wise, quirky, and very trusting. Thank you. You're loved and respected by everyone. Guilty. But sometimes you put too much pressure on yourself to make everything right. Don't you think that's true? <laughs> Albus Dumbledore it is. Um, but what I hear you say, does this have to do with the passage we have just read? The answer is hardly anything at all. Um, <laughs> but this is an important point. Last week, Jamie talked about how when the gospel writers wrote down these stories about Jesus' life, their intention was not just to document history. Their intention was not just to document historical events for us to read back on. But they wrote them in such a way that we would be invited to have our own encounters with Jesus. So as we enter into these stories, we shouldn't just find Jesus in the stories, but we should also see ourselves somewhere within these stories as well. So one of the most helpful ways to do that when you're reading a passage like this, it's not the only way to read scripture, but it's one helpful way sometimes is to ask, who do I most relate to in this story? Um, so that's how I want to tackle this story together this morning, just with that question at the forefront of our minds. Who do I most relate to in this story. So without further ado, let's look at Simon the Pharisee. So it's worth noting this, that a key for understanding Simon's mindset and his behavior in this passage is actually found in the passage that comes just before this. You've still got your Bibles open, you can look to that if you want to. So in the bit just before this passage, Jesus describes how the Pharisees had this big accusation of him that he is, and I quote, Jesus says this, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was their big problem with Jesus. Um, it was how can someone who is supposed to be a holy man sent from God, how could someone like that hang out with those kinds of people? Surely they thought, according to the Jewish law, those people would make Jesus unclean. Surely their dirtiness, their sinfulness would rub off on him. Or they thought perhaps he's just one of them in the first place, a glutton and a drunkard. And so as if to answer that accusation, Luke, who's writing this and ordering how all the stories go together, he then launches into our story that we've just read today, this moment when Jesus met the woman with the perfume. And actually, we should probably call it the moment when Jesus met a sex worker. Um, because scholars basically agree that when Jesus uses that phrase, uh, when, sorry, Luke describes this woman and uses that phrase as living a sinful life, that was basically a euphemism for a prostitute or what we might say today, a sex worker. And it doesn't take long for that sort of Pharisee's heart to be exposed in Simon in this story. As he starts to observe the woman interacting with Jesus, he starts muttering to himself, and we read this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman that she is, that she's a sinner. 
So for Simon, he's like, I knew it. Everything that we thought about Jesus is true. This is just as we suspected. But if this man is supposed to be as holy and wise as he claims to be, then he wouldn't be letting someone like that, like a sex worker, he wouldn't let her touch him. He would know that contact with a woman like that is dirty, it's shameful, and it makes him unclean by association with her. But the thing about Jesus, and this is so true today as well, is he always sees our hearts. He always knows what's going on in our hearts. And Simon might have thought he was sort of muttering that to himself, but Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking, and so he calls it out into the open, and he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And then he tells that story that we've just read together about two people who owe money to a money lender. One owes a huge amount, one owes not particularly much, um, but the money lender pardons both debts because neither of them can afford to pay them. And then Jesus asks Simon, who do you think is the most grateful? Simon answers, we just read this, I suppose the one who owed the most. But then Jesus makes it personal. And suddenly it's not a story about um, a money lender and two people in debt. It's a story about Jesus who has the power to forgive sins and two sinners, the woman and Simon himself as well. And Jesus basically goes on to point out to Simon about how everything about the woman's loving actions at that dinner party towards Jesus have demonstrated that she is recognized, she needs Jesus, and she has received his forgiveness for herself. And by contrast, everything about Simon's actions towards Jesus at that dinner party have demonstrated that he doesn't get it at all. And Jesus sort of sums it up in this neat little formula, and he says, he has been forgiven little, loves little. And you could sort of have it the other way as well. He or she who has been forgiven much, therefore, loves much. And he says this, her great love has shown that she's um, been forgiven much. And then it's a weird part end to the story because the attention shifts completely away from Simon. And we actually never get to hear how he responds to Jesus' cha- Jesus's challenge, what he does in response. But what is clear from the story that Jesus has told is that forgiveness is on the table for Simon as well as for the woman. He might have that smaller debt. He might not have had such a messy life as this woman has, but it's still a debt that he can't pay on his own. And Jesus is ready and waiting to clear that debt for him. I don't know about you, it's easy to read that. And I think, come on, Simon, like, don't miss out. It's so obvious. Just join in. Um, But if you're anything like me, this is actually a lot harder in practice than it looks. I was trying to think a little bit this week about who do I relate to most and how do I relate to Simon? In what ways do I relate to Simon? (coughs) And I was thinking about actually the January before we moved here, so not the last January, the one before that. We knew that we were moving to Liverpool to church plant at that point and we went to the Vineyard National Leaders Conference. They have it every year. It's a conference for church leaders across the country. Um, And the thing you need to know about me is, and this is, I'm very excited about Cause to Live For, so let me just have that clear and out there. But I have a love-hate relationship with Christian conferences. Um, I love them because on the one hand, I do come away utterly inspired, often by various bits of teaching I hear, different people I've met, I come away utterly, utterly inspired. I love that sense of being in a room full of people, where you're in a room full of thousands of people all worshipping Jesus together. And I have really genuinely had some of the most profound encounters I've had with God in my life have often taken place in those sorts of contexts as well. So I absolutely love them. At the same time, they can bring out the worst insecurities in me when I'm at a Christian conference like that. I can just find myself comparing myself to all the Christians around me and find myself feeling horribly insecure and just thinking, oh, why am I not more like that? Oh, I should be doing more of that. I should be more like that. 
Um, so anyway, at this conference that we were at, the January before we moved here, um, I'd spent most of it in that place, being really honest. I'd just felt desperately insecure for the whole conference. I was caring way too much about how I was coming across to other people, what different people thought of me, what different people thought of me and Jamie and church planting, all of that, how I measured up as a leader, not just even how I measured up as a leader, how I measured up as a Christian um, compared to what people were saying on the stage or off the stage. And these thoughts were just going round and round and round. And then on top of that, I then started beating myself up for feeling insecure as well. So it wasn't just that I felt insecure. I was then like, oh, how can you be so insecure at this stage in your life? So beating myself up again and again. Anyway, on the final night of the conference, they announced that Jamie and I were church planting in Liverpool. And what should have been like an amazing, really exciting moment to celebrate I was just in floods of tears. I felt completely hollow. And I just got, I was in this place thinking, how on earth am I about to plant a church? And I still feel this insecure on the, on the inside. Um, and that was the end of the conference. Woohoo! <laughs> so happy ending. Um, so we left the conference. I was in a terrible mood. We went to bed, um, got up the next morning, set off the next day to get, to get in the car to head home. And Jamie told me later that as, as he opened the door to the car, he just felt God whisper to him, um, just so you know, I've got some unfinished business with Kath, so it'd be nice if you could just sort of prod around and see what <laughs> see what see what's going on. Um, so he loves doing that. So um, sure enough, about half an hour into the car journey, Jamie just started asking some sort of probing questions about how I'm doing. I'm fine. Um, what did you get out of the conference? Oh, not much. Um, anyway, he kept going, so it kept prodding and finding out what was going on for me, and then I just lost it and launched into this enormous rant, saying to him. There's no way we can lead a church. How on earth am I going to lead a church at this stage in my life? I'm still a total mess. I'm still desperately insecure. I still care way too much what other people think about me. I still have mixed motives. Yes, I want people in Liverpool to encounter God's love. But also, if I'm really honest, I just want lots of my friends not to think, well, that totally bombed. Stupid people thinking that they could do that. And I sort of eventually drew breath. And um, Jamie, <laughs> in his kindness, um, didn't stroke my ego and say, no, Kath, you're amazing. You can do it. I think you're wonderful. He does say that in different moments. Um, but what he actually said, and I think it was what I needed to hear most at that time, was, yeah, welcome to the club. You're a sinner. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I'm, I don't actually remember his words verbatim because I don't tend to. But he basically wanted to say, yeah, you're not perfect. You do have mixed motives, like me. You do care way too much, actually, about what other people think about you. That's true. But... Jesus is not looking for perfect people. He doesn't just call perfect people. In fact, read the Bible and see the kind of people he called again and again and again. Instead, what Jesus is looking for is people who will choose to live in dependence on him. So we prayed, and I sort of reluctantly prayed with Jamie. <laughs> and as we prayed, I gradually just began to let go of the need to have it all together the need to be better than I am in this moment and allowed myself in that moment to be embraced by God again as a, quote, sinner. Dietrich Bonhoeffer <coughs> was a famous German theologian. Some of you will be familiar with him. He stood up against Hitler and the Nazi regime, an amazing, incredible guy. He actually died for it in a concentration camp. Um, but during that time, he ran a sort of, it's kind of like a sort of residential Bible college for um, people who were training to be church leaders. And his desire for that community was that they, they would grow the kind of distinctive community that would act as a witness to the rest of the country in those incredibly dark times, that they would live in a different way 
to what was going on around them. And he wrote this book about their um, community life called Life Together, imaginatively. Um, and there's this chapter at the end of the book where he writes about the need to confess our sin to each other. And he writes this. The pious fellowship, i.e. the church where it's all about good behavior, permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. The mask you hide behind before men will do no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Now, I don't know about you. When I read that, um, I thought, there's some really good stuff in this. But if I'm honest, that word sinner just sort of jars with me every time. Bonhoeffer sort of just says that word sinner, and I'm like, ooh, something in me just sort of cringes. And for some in the room, I imagine as well, every time I've used the sinner so far, you sort of slightly clenched your buttocks and you've felt like, like slightly tense when I've said it. Um, and if, if you resonate, resonate with that at all, I think we do that. I think we recoil from that word for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think it's this, because it is a lot easier when it comes to sin. It's much more comfortable to see the problem as out there rather than in here. And this is what Simon does with this woman in the story. He can see her as a sinner, no problem, but he certainly doesn't see himself in that camp. For Simon, the problem is out there. It's with those people, the tax collectors, the sinners. They are the problem. And I think we do this. We might do it with very different groups of people today, but we do this in our own ways all the time. We make other people the problem. So Donald Trump, he's the problem. Or racist people, they're the problem. Or that corner of the church over there, oh, they are the problem. And that isn't to say that there aren't things about those people and those groups that are deeply problematic. There surely are. But it fails to recognize, actually, me. I'm part of the problem, too. Um, Jamie told, this, told me this story this week about an article he'd read about this bunch of celebrities that had come out criticizing their governments for not doing enough to tackle climate change. But when they were asked by this interviewer, um, they just failed to take any responsibility for the enormous carbon footprint that their celebrity lifestyle leaves. And why do they, why does they find that hard? Because it is hard. It's hard to say, actually, I'm the problem. I'm contributing to climate change. It's far easier to say, you, you over there, you're the problem. So that's the first reason, I think, when we hear the word sinner, we sort of wince and recoil. The second reason, and I think this one goes deeper than the first, and, but they are related, is I think we hear that word sinner and we associate it with heavy condemnation, painful rejection, and the kind of assessments of us that leave us feeling unworthy and unloved. And really sadly, I think that has in no small way to do with how the church has often talked about sin and how the church has treated, in quotes, sinful people. You know, even in recent times, the church has been guilty for having a framework for sin, which is actually a lot like Simon's in this story. This idea that sinners are people who engage in sort of particular naughty behaviors that make them unclean and therefore unwelcome in the presence of good and holy people. And actually, that probably then extends to they are unwelcome in the presence of God himself. 
But the truth is, this is the exact opposite of how the church is supposed to operate. I read this book on my summer holiday. I didn't agree with it all, but it's by a guy called Francis Bufford called Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything Christianity Still Makes Surprising Emotional Sense. And he talks, a very long title for a book, <coughs> and he talks about how the church should actually be known as the International League of the Guilty. And he writes this, of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people and excluding the bad people for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty, not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognize each other, to understand that there's a family resemblance that makes us family even with the nastiest and most frightening of our brothers and sisters. You see, in Simon's framework, if he were to confess to being a sinner, that would leave him, in his mind, on the outside, looking in. But the framework that Jesus gives him in this story says the absolute opposite. It says, no, confessing to being a sinner is the way in. It's the way into grace. It's the way into freedom from that impossible burden of trying to get everything right all the time. It's the way in to experiencing unconditional love, the kind of love that loves you at your best, yes, but also at your worst. The kind of love that, as Bonhoeffer puts it, as we've just read, wants us as we are, doesn't want anything from us, not our sacrifices or our works, just wants us. And that is Bonhoeffer's invitation to us. It's Jesus' invitation to Simon. Come on, they say, dare, dare to be a sinner. Jamie mentioned this earlier, but we have a vision as a church to grow a distinctive community. Like Bonhoeffer said, we want to grow a distinctive community that acts as a sign of hope to the city. But I really believe this part of what will make us distinctive is as we begin to have the courage with each other and before God to dare to be sinners. You know, when Jesus confronts Simon, he asks him that question, doesn't he? Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Because I really believe this, it's the truth that only when we dare to be a sinners and we allow our set ourselves first and foremost to experience the grace, unconditional love of God that will begin to truly see others in this room and then beyond this room, in this city, the right way as God sees them. Okay, so that's enough about Simon. We're going to park Simon. I'm going to spend less time on the woman, so fret not if you fear you're going to be here all morning. Um, what about the woman? How does she end up at Jesus' feet? So in the chapter before the one that we've just read, it's worth reading actually in your own time if you've got time. Jesus has described how John the Baptist has prepared the way for his coming. So John has prepared people's hearts ahead of time to receive Jesus. And he's even baptized them as a mark of their turning back to God. And most scholars seem to agree that what is most likely here for this woman is that that's what's been her experience. She's met John the Baptist. She's heard this message of grace and forgiveness and unconditional love that is coming through Jesus. But now she's come looking for Jesus in person to express her gratitude. Hence her sort of rocking up at the dinner party, good to go, with the bottle of perfume in hand. Um, it's important to note, by the way, because I thought this was a bit weird, that apparently dinners were much more public events than they are today. So it's not quite as awkward as it seems that she sort of rocks up to this dinner party unannounced. Um, but nevertheless, given her background, given her line of work, it would have been the most enormous act of courage to enter into the polite company of people who she knew would look down on her and knew would be turning their noses up at her. 
And not only that, she doesn't just have the courage to turn up at this dinner party. She then enters into this deep display of affection, this deep act of gratitude and honor, this act that we might say sort of retrospectively to use our language, this act of worship at Jesus' feet. And Jesus' confrontation with Simon that we've read already exposes that where Simon has done the bare minimum as a host at this dinner party, this woman goes out of her way to express honor and devotion to Jesus. So Simon hasn't offered Jesus any water to wash his sort of dusty feet from the journey, but this woman goes as far as to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. Simon doesn't offer a towel for Jesus to uh, to dry his feet, but this woman risks ridicule by letting her hair down and drying Jesus' feet with her hair. That um, action of a woman letting her hair down was basically something that was normally reserved for a man and woman in the bedroom. So it was known as an incredibly provocative act. So she, she risks ridicule to let down her hair and dry Jesus' feet with her hair. Simon offers Jesus no warm sort of kiss of greeting. She smothers Jesus' feet with kisses. Simon hasn't even stretched to anointing Jesus with some olive oil, which was kind of standard practice. But this woman has bought the most expensive perfume and she pours out the lot on Jesus' feet. The woman's actions are these raw, really raw and really costly acts of worship. And they're born out of gratitude and love for Jesus in the response to the forgiveness and love that he's already brought to her life. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about one of the other most sort of famous worshippers in the Bible, the Israelite King David. He, he's responsible for writing at least half of the Psalms, I think, um, which is sort of the songbook of the Bible. And he was really passionate about this too. In response to the goodness of God in his life, he never shrunk back from raw worship, and he never shrunk back from costly worship of Jesus. And there's actually this scene, some of you will be familiar with, where he dances before God, essentially in nothing more than his underpants. And his wife quite understandably, reprimands him for making an exhibition of himself in front of his servants. And he responds by saying this to her, it was before the Lord, i.e. not anyone else, that I danced. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And David's worship, just like the woman's, was for an audience of one. It was for the Lord alone. And neither of them, David nor the woman, could care less what any of the onlookers thought. There's another moment in David's life, I love this, where he wants as an act of worship to build a sacrifice on an altar, on a sort of specific piece of land in gratitude to God. And the landowner basically says to David, knowing that he's king, oh, I'll give you the land for free, and I'll tell you what, I'll throw in all the bits and bobs that you'll need for your sacrifice as well. But David says, no, I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. You know, for some of us in the room, we might just be exploring faith. We might just be sort of exploring the person of Jesus for the first time. Others, we might have met Jesus really recently, and we're finding ourselves more and more drawn into situations where following him seems like actually it might cost us something. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're in that camp, if this is new for you, be of good courage because you are in very good company. And your desire to follow Jesus, even if it costs you something, absolutely delights him and honors him but for others of us you might like me have been following Jesus for a longer time and I think a really good question for us to check in and ask ourselves is this when was the last time that my worship of Jesus cost me something and worship 
is about the whole of our lives. We know that. So it might be, when was the last time that my worship of Jesus cost me something financially? Like this woman who's blown her wages on a jar of perfume to pour out at Jesus' feet. It might be, when was the last time my worship of Jesus cost me my reputation? (laughs) When was the last time that I made a sort of life decision based on following Jesus that others thought was completely bonkers? But I did it because I felt like the Lord was asking me to. And even just to zoom in to a really sort of more narrow form of worship, our sort of sung worship together perhaps on a Sunday here or in other environments, when was the last time I so went for it in a time of worship like that that I risked other people laughing at me or looking at me and thinking, oh, she's, she's going for it this morning. You know, as a kid, I loved to dance in worship. I used to actually like making up dances to worship songs. And um, I genuinely have, and I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, this is genuine, I have a soft spot for flag-waving Christians, people that wave flags in, wait, wait before you mark wait. I have a soft spot for people like that. Um, A, because I think their desire to go for it and worship God is something to be commended, not to be mocked. But B, because as a kid, I had a flag. (laughs) And I used to love not just using my voice in worship, but my whole body to express love to God. But as I got older, gradually, I got more and more self-conscious. The flag got thrown on the tip. Um, And whenever there was one of those sort of worship songs, some of you will be familiar with them, that were vaguely sort of dance-related, I would like die inside. I would just, my feet would be glued to the spot and I would just think, oh my gosh, how awful. And a few years ago, um, hopefully some of you will remember this, this song came out called God's Great Dance Floor. And um, to my shame, when I first heard it, to my shame, I thought, this is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. How childish is this? This is so stupid. And the first time I heard it, I was in a church service, and the words go something like this. You'll never stop loving us, no matter how far we run. You'll never give up on us. All of heaven shouts, let the future begin. And then it goes, I feel alive. I come alive. I am alive on God's great dance floor. And the first time I heard this, I just stood there with my feet absolutely glued to the spot, looking around at other people who were going for it and dancing, thinking, oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Get me out of here. (coughs) Anyway, a couple of months later, I was in another church gathering, and my heart had just been grabbed again by how much God loves me, how good God is, how kind he is, how consistently faithful he is, how much he's done for me. And I was just sort of swept up in, and, and overcome by how much that was. And the band sort of struck up, and they started playing this song. And this time, I didn't care. I just, the people to my left and right this time were glued to the spot, standing there like, oh, gosh, ground swallowing me up. Um, but I just went for it. I let go. I threw myself into the middle, um, body, you know, voice and heart. And I just, I didn't really care what anyone around me thought. I wanted to honor God, yes, with my voice, but also with the whole of me. I wanted to offer offer a sacrifice that cost me something, that cost me other people thinking, Kath looks like a bit of an idiot, because I wanted to honor him for his goodness and his grace in my life. And do you know what, guys? I did feel alive on God's great dance floor. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course... This is a much wider issue than whether or not we are up for dancing in sung worship on a Sunday. And in one sense, and some of you can breathe a sigh of relief, it's not about that at all. It's not what I'm talking about. But I do actually believe this at the same time. There will be times if we are to truly follow Jesus, to truly give him all of our affection, all of our devotion like we sang about earlier, 
it is going to cost us a heck of a lot more than looking a bit stupid sometimes in front, some of, in front of some of our friends at church on a Sunday. So in some ways, how comfortable you feel doing something like that, it's a good little litmus test to start with about how comfortable you feel looking like a bit of an idiot in front of other people. And it's a good place to start sometimes as well. And beyond that as well, if our desire as follower of Jesus is not just to follow him, but to become more and more like him, then I want to close by just looking finally at how he behaves in this story, and not just in this story, but in his whole life. But we quickly recognize this pattern in his life. He was never afraid to face the bad opinions or judgments of other people, and especially when it was in defense of somebody else, especially it was in in defense of someone else. So when this woman in the story crouches at his feet and begins weeping, Jesus knows full well what the Pharisees and Simon and the others are looking on thinking. But he doesn't just say to the woman, oh, there, there, dear, best not make a scene. You know, when she lets down her hair, in what was like this provocative act, he's like, not like, oh, actually a little bit inappropriate, so maybe just tie your hair back up again. You know, when she starts kissing his feet, he's not like, whoa, people might get the wrong idea. Remember what you do for a job and people might, you know, he doesn't do any of that. He accepts her raw, undignified act of worship. And in doing so, what happens is the criticism that Simon and the Pharisees are leveling and focusing in on this woman moves over to Jesus. And Jesus starts taking the fall. Jesus starts taking the criticism and absorbing the shame. Because Jesus is never afraid of what Simon was afraid of. He's not afraid that the woman's actions will somehow make him dirty or bring shame on him. Jesus is never afraid about this. And story after story in the Gospels, you see Jesus coming into contact with people who were seen in that time as unclean. And instead of their uncleanness rubbing off on him, his holiness rubs off on them. He makes them clean. Instead of them bringing shame on him, he sets them free from their shame and he clothes them with dignity. And he never cares what anyone who's looking on might think about it. This is always the way of Jesus. And it is the way that I really believe this, that we as a church, the hands and feet of Jesus, we are called to follow in this way. So I want to close with a story I read a few years ago in a book by Brené Brown. Brené Brown, for those of you who don't know, um, she's she sort of had a moment a few years ago. I think she's dying in a moment, but she had a big moment a few years ago. She's a speaker and researcher, and she looks into topics of like sort of shame and vulnerability. That's her area of research. So a lot of her work, a lot of her books circle around these sort of subjects. Anyway, in one of her books, I forget which one it is, um, she writes about uh, developing different practices in our lives that can help us combat shame in our own lives. And interestingly, and like what we've just talked about in terms of worship, she writes about how one of the practices that we can cultivate in our lives to combat shame is dance and song. Those two things can help us combat shame in our lives. And this is something that she's wanting to teach her kids. She wants her kids to grow up free from shame. So they have this practice in their family, and I love this. I'm totally going to steal this for our little bambino. Um, They have this practice in their family that every day after dinner, um, whilst they're doing the washing up, they stick on some tunes and they have a dance-off as a family with each other whilst they're doing the washing up. Absolutely love it. Anyway, she tells this story about how one day... She was out shopping with her daughter in a department store and they bumped into some of her daughter's friends from school and their mums. 
Um, and the backstory to this is that sort of Brene had always felt quite intimidated by this group of mums because they would always turn up at the school gates looking like absolutely immaculate and turned out and together and like sending their kids off with these perfect pet lunches. And Brene would be like lucky if she was in her pajamas like at the school gates on time with her kids. So she always just felt like slightly inadequate and slightly like the odd one out. Anyway, they bumped into this group of women, bumped into these kids, and Brene was just sort of striking up this conversation with them and feeling like, oh, I just feel a bit insecure, when her daughter ran over to her and started going, mummy, 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 and she's like, not now, darling, I'm just trying to have a conversation. Her daughter's like, no, mummy, mummy, listen, listen, it's the washing up song. And the washing up song that they'd been using that week had come on over the sound system in the sort of in the department store. And before Brene could say, no, 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 her daughter just sort of jumped right out in front of her and started throwing her best shapes in front of everyone. And Brene just froze, and she was just like glued to the spot. And she looked up, and the, the mums were sort of thinking, oh, she looked at these mums who were sort of turning up their noses and thinking, oh, gosh, she needs to learn how to behave in public. And she looked at her daughter's school friends, and they were all sort of starting to giggle. She looked at her daughter who was sort of still going for it. And she's thinking, oh, oh, gosh, this is so awkward. And she was just about to intervene and say to her daughter, darling, you know, come on. Um, and then she looked back at her daughter and suddenly realised that her daughter was looking at her school friends. And then her daughter was looking at the mums who were looking down at her. And then she turned around to look at Brene. And as she looked at Brene, her face had gone bright red. And she had tears filling her eyes. Oh, it makes me want to cry. She had tears filling her eyes. And her mum in that moment just caught herself and thought, what am I doing? And in that moment, she just summoned up all her courage. And she thought, there is no way I'm going to let my daughter feel shame here. She summed up all her courage. She jumped into the middle. She grabbed her daughter's hands and she started dancing with her. And at that point, her daughter's eyes were no longer fixed on her school friends or her school friends' mums. They were looking at Brene and Brene was looking at her and she was grinning back at her with delight. And she started doing the robot in front of her daughter as well. Now, I cried when I read that story. I almost choked up again telling it again this morning because I feel it is the most beautiful picture of the way that Jesus always is with us. He always jumps in to take on our shame so that we don't have to experience it. But this is also the way of Jesus that we are called to. We are called to lay down our good reputation. We are called to lay down what other people think of us, lay down our pride so that others can find the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus so desperately wants to bring to them too. So <clears throat> I want to close just by asking that question I asked you at the beginning. Where are you in this story? Who do you most relate to in this story? Are you Simon? Do you need to hear again this morning, forgiveness, grace, unconditional love, it's all on the table for you. If only you'll dare to let go of needing to have it all together and instead dare to be a sinner. Now, are you more like the woman? Perhaps you've encountered the love of Jesus, perhaps for the first time, but perhaps afresh recently, you've encountered the love of Jesus again, and you can feel yourself being drawn into situations, into worship of him, but you know it's going to cost you something. And do you feel the call to be more like Jesus, to lay down your good reputation, the opinions, what other people think of you, in order that you might reach others with the love that he so desperately wants to show to them? Where are you in the story? So we're going to close by turning all the lights off and dancing to God's great dance floor. I couldn't even get the joke out without smiling. We're not going to do that. I promise you we're not going to do that. But we are going to stand together. Um, 
And let's just create, if you stand if you feel able, and let's just create some space, as we always like to do on a Sunday, to pray. Um, if you're new here, what we do is we, we just try and create a bit of space, basically, to allow what we've just been mulling over in our heads to drop into our hearts. And just for God to highlight anything in us that he's wanting to speak to us about today. Um, you might find it helpful, I just often encourage people just to close your eyes so you're not distracted by what's going on by anyone else. And to be honest, no one cares because they're thinking about what's going on with them. The other thing that I find helpful, again, you don't have to, it's not magic, but I find it helpful sometimes just to put out my hands as a way of saying, God, I want everything that you've got for me. Again, you don't have to, there's nothing magic about it, but sometimes I think postures like that just help your heart catch up. So if you feel comfortable doing that, I just encourage you to do that as well. And I'm just going to pray. And what I'll do, if this feels unfamiliar, I just try and leave a bit of silence as well. So it's not just me talking. So you've got time to do business with God. But I'm just going to pray and ask God to come by his spirit and speak to us. <clears throat>